Thank you very much. <laughs> so at this point, uh, I've really enjoyed being with you uh, today uh, as part of the undergraduate uh, philosophy conference that I've just been attending and, and listening to and chatting to people in there. Uh, at this stage, I must then preface what I'm going to do with sort of apology to the, the philosophers who've had their brain in high gear all day, because now comes the light entertainment in a sense. Uh, I've been deliberately asked to speak to a, a broader audience than the, than the specialists, so I'll be speaking at a more uh, introductory level. I'm also not going to uh, do the usual thing of presenting an argument and saying, and here's the classic counter-argument, and here's how I would counter the counter-argument, and go into the, the detail of the debate. I'll leave that for the uh, discussion uh, time, as it were, uh, so that I'm uh, purposefully uh, sacrificing uh, a measure of depth in order to uh, buy myself a measure of breadth in, in the material that I cover. Uh, I was asked to uh, cover some of the um, arguments for the existence of God uh, within the, the realm of, of uh, natural the theology in philosophy of religion. Um, but I've decided to try and put that in a context of thinking more broadly about, about worldview, about uh, materialistic or naturalistic worldview uh, versus uh, a theistic worldview. And indeed, uh, to put a special focus on uh, the whole issue of scientism and philosophy, which has been a, a growing part of the public debate in, in recent years uh, that I think uh, gets in the way of a serious consideration of the philosophical arguments for God if one has a scientific, that is scientific rather than scientific, uh, understanding of a theory of knowledge of how we know things or epistemology, as philosophers will say, because we like long foreign words meaning simple things. So I've called this uh, scientism, science, and half a dozen or so arguments for God. And I'll look at uh, how I would characterise the relationship between some of the discoveries of modern science and how that feeds into the contemporary debate about the existence of God, which happens at a philosophical rather than a scientific uh, level, whatever uh, Richard Dawkins says contrawise. Also, there'll be uh, uh, bonus points at the end for those who can name uh, the classic starships that I've dropped into some of my slides, just to keep you awake. Uh, so, uh, a little prolegomena, or preface, uh, to launching into the main meat of this. Uh, I'm not going to be presenting half a dozen arguments, each of which I consider to be a proof, and proof would be too strong a word if one took it in the mathematical sense of God, but rather look at half a dozen or so arguments that when taken together as part of a cumulative case, I think gives uh, at least prima facie warrant, on the face of it warrant, to belief in what Anthony Flew called an intelligent source, with a capital S, or what Richard Dawkins calls a supernatural intelligence who deliberately designed and created the universe. So it's like, um, to draw uh, an analogy, it's like constructing a historical description of, of past events from uh, weaving together information from multiple test sources of testimony uh, to try and build up a picture, or building up an identikit uh, picture of the criminal uh, from uh, information and witnesses from a crime scene. 
Uh, these half a dozen or so are by no means all of the theistic arguments, and uh, one point I'd like to convey is that there are perhaps more kinds of theistic argument uh, than um, the public uh, general, as it were, are, are aware of, or that one might be aware of from reading, uh, say, Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, or what have you. And also, I should note that setting aside the ontological argument, though I will mention it briefly, uh, such a, a cumulative case doesn't necessarily justify what you might consider a fully orbed uh, religious conception of God with a capital G. Um, and Thomas Aquinas famously in his five ways would give you know, a cosmological argument for God and then sort of say at the end, and this is what everyone understands to be God. Uh, when, of course, he hasn't by any means, as, as David Hume would carefully point out later, um, argued for everything that uh, Thomas Aquinas believes about God or that he believes can be established about God on the basis of human reason, uh, even. Uh, just that he would identify this is one of the pointers to that thing which we believe in, which we call God. Uh, so something similar is going on here. Perhaps the conclusion of the argument is, and therefore there is some kind of a God with a small g, uh, and then through um, a sort of process of cumulative argument and application of Occam's razor and so on, one would identify the conclusions of those arguments uh, in order to build up gradually this picture of God in a natural theological kind of a way. And this, um, what you might call a, a philosophical theism or deism or just belief in some kind of a, a creator or source with a capital S, as it were, might then um, usefully underpin one's examination of, of particular revelation claims through which one then might get an even more specific conception of the nature of God. Uh, so this is by no means necessarily the whole story, as it were. But what about naturalism? I've been planting a American Christian philosopher of religion famously says that naturalism is the idea that there is no such person as God or anything like God. Uh, we might think of it as uh, high-octane atheism, he says. Nice expression. It's certainly, naturalism is the dominant view in academia uh, since sometime around the middle of the, the 20th century. It has not always been the dominant worldview in academia, and it might not always be the dominant worldview in academia, but it happens to be at the moment, certainly. I don't have statistics for every department of academia. Um, I do know a recent survey showed that some 49.8% of contemporary philosophers say that they accept or lean towards a naturalistic worldview. Now, margin of error bars being what they are and everything, I think that, that can at least just allow us to say that philosophers are split on the issue of whether a naturalistic worldview is true, even though in the university at large that tends to take on uh, the sort of position of the orthodoxy of the current day. Uh, atheist philosopher uh, Julian Bugini describes naturalism as a belief that there is only the natural world and not any supernatural one, so it would be uh, a naturalistic worldview in contrast to any kind of supernaturalistic worldview. Tightening up, up a little bit, we might say that it's belief that reality 
is an uncreated, causally closed physical system where being physical uh, entails being um, amoral, that's not immoral, but, but amoral, uh, impersonal in its fundamental structure, um, being non-intentional in its fundamental structure, uh, atoms are not going around the universe with little thoughts and intentions and uh, committing moral actions and, and so on. Uh, and that is the fundamental uh, nature of reality. And that everything is then to be explained ultimately in terms of that kind of uncreated, causally closed, physical, unintentional system. So Alex Rosenberg, uh, atheist philosopher of science, describes naturalism as the idea that physics is causally closed and causally complete. Once you've given the physical account of things, that's it. You can put your full stop and there are no other sensible questions to be answered, as it were. And a naturalistic worldview is, is often wedded to the faith that empirical science is the only or the best means of knowing reality. Uh, a, a view of the theory of knowledge that's called uh, scientism. Uh, again, not science, but scientism. Um, this extending of, of the scientific method to being the best or the only reliable method of knowing uh, about real things. So here's uh, Alex Rosenberg on describing his sort of naturalistic credo a little bit more fulsomely from his book, The Atheist's Guide to Reality. Um, and he says, uh, puts it in this sort of question and answer form, uh, is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is? What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when we die? Everything pretty much goes on as before, except us. Uh, what is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. He says. So he's quite a sort of hard-line naturalist, you might say. There are people who are naturalists who will take issue with one or more elements of this, but I think this is an expression of one mainline classical way of cashing out our naturalistic worldview. And it's interesting to see that Rosenberg then pairs this um, description of reality and ontology of naturalism with a scientific, and he, he explicitly embraces this term, account of knowledge. So he says that scientism is the conviction that the methods of science are the only reliable way to secure knowledge of anything. Being scientistic just means treating science as our exclusive guide to reality. We trust science as the only way to acquire knowledge, he says. And this is a, a growing trend uh, amongst public intellectuals in our culture. Nonetheless, if you look at culture at large, rather than looking at academia at large, I think um, Dr. Howard Taylor is right when he says most people in the world intuitively recognise, because he obviously believes this, or we could just say intuitively believe, that there's more to life than mere atoms and laws of physics and so on, more that is than naturalism or physics or science can describe. People have this intuition that there's, there's more to it than that. And Morland and, and Craig, I think, say something significant about intuition and the role that intuition plays 
in philosophy. And indeed, you can think about the role that intuition plays in, in science as well. I say in philosophy, intuitions play an important role. They're not infallible, of course, but they are prima facie, on the face of it, justified. If one carefully reflects on something and a certain viewpoint intuitively seems to be true, then one is justified in believing that viewpoint in the absence of overriding counter-arguments. Sort of the, the burden of proof, as it were, is on the sceptic of what seems intuitively obvious to one. And many philosophers have cashed out sort of so-called principles of credulity uh, in epistemology. Um, principle of credulity is the way that Richard Swinburne phrases it in particular. Furthermore, they say, an appeal to intuitions doesn't rule out the use of additional arguments and further support of that appeal, but they note that any discussion of, well, is there an overriding counter-argument to my intuitive view of things, will ultimately track back to some foundational intuitions about the way things are, because, of course, it's impossible, literally, to argue for everything. Um, you have to argue from somewhere in order to argue to any conclusion. Uh, you can't have the principle that you must argue for everything that you believe because then you would never be able to argue for anything that you believe because you'd never have time to fulfil the condition. Um, and it would uh, invoke a, a vicious uh, infinite regress. So intuitions are uh, important although they're not the, the last word, as it were, but they play always an important role. So in, in recent history, there has, of course, been a, a plethora of um, books defending atheism, particularly the neo-atheists have, have done this in the, in the public square. They, they are the court of atheists that make other atheists roll their eyes, just as there are differences within uh, religious denominations and there are certain sorts of Christians that make me roll my eyes as a Christian, there are <laughs> atheists who roll their eyes at other atheists, and that's fine. We all have our in-house problems. Um, but, of course, then there will then be uh, uh, theists who write books uh, in the academy against naturalistic worldviews, I uh, particularly highlight to you there the, the lovely volume Naturalism, a Critical Analysis, by, edited by William and Craig, or those who will advance more positive arguments for a theistic worldview. Um, again, some uh, s selection of, of books here. Uh, and there's been a resurgence of interest in this whole area of, of natural theology uh, in the last half century since the sort of uh, demise, as we'll look at a little bit later, of the sort of positivist, very narrow analytical philosophy movement of, of Oxford in the, the mid-century. So that today even someone like Plantinga is particularly famous for sort of doing an end run around the whole natural theology discussion with his discussion of reformed epistemology um, is not averse to, to noting that there are a number of what he considers reasonably strong arguments for the existence of God, even though he's someone who doesn't think that you need to have arguments in order to rationally believe in God. But an interesting recent trend is the trend in um, secular thinkers, agnostics and atheists, uh, questioning um, at least elements of, or the entirety of, a naturalistic uh, worldview. So there's, there seems to be less of a coincidence these days between being an atheist and being a naturalist, necessarily. So 
Um, an atheist a philosopher of mine from America, Thomas Nagel, was branded a heretic recently for publishing uh, this book, Mind and Cosmos, which uh, the, the subtitle will give you a gist of what it's about. He says, Mind and Cosmos, why the materialist neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false. And there's lots of interesting uh, material in that book. Or recently the agnostic uh, philosopher Anthony Kenny uh, noted in a book review in the Times that he thought there were signs that naturalism is collapsing under its own weight. Or the atheist philosopher Mary Midgley in her 2014 book Are You an Illusion? Uh, stated that the materialist credo itself is already beginning to fray around the edges. And this is part of a, uh, a growing trend of secular academics questioning naturalism or, or elements of a naturalistic uh, worldview. Again, a selection uh, up here from the likes of Bradley Monton and David Belinsky and Anthony Fleur and Nagel and, and Midgley and Dworkin and uh, Jerry Fodor and so on. So, there's a bit of a prefacing and, and putting some fingers on some sort of points of what's happening sort of in the cultural discussion at the moment. Let's take a little while to look at science and scientism. Uh, philosophers can never uh, avoid a pun if they can help it. Uh, so I've labelled this section from Aquinas to air and back again. See what I did there? Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, spot the spaceship. Um, Thomas Aquinas, back in the 13th century, of course, would describe theology as the queen of sciences, which sounds very odd to our contemporary ears. What you have to realise is, because he's, he's working in Latin, and the word uh, scientia just means knowledge or an academic discipline. Um, and as a Christian, he thought of theology as the, the crowning academic discipline in the sense that it was the academic discipline that tried to integrate one's thinking from all of the other academic disciplines into uh, a synoptic world view. So the area of study that we now call science, or the natural sciences, would have been called, and, and were up until relatively recently in history, natural philosophy. Philosophy about the natural world, as opposed to philosophy about supernatural uh, entities and so on. And that's why he could um, go that route with theology, the queen of sciences, and the handmaiden philosophy shepherding the interaction, the integration of theology with the other disciplines uh, through logic and so on. Nancy Piercy, in her fascinating book, Saving Leonardo, sort of philosopher doing cultural analysis, um, argues that uh, a strict separation between the concept of facts and the concepts of values is really important in recent culture. It's the key to unlocking the history of the modern Western mind, she argues, uh, in that people have always known that there's a distinction between, between is and ought. We were discussing this in one of the philosophy papers earlier today. Um, between what you are, what you should be, between descriptive statements... Uh, and uh, normative statements in ethics. But in early ages, people thought that both types of statement dealt with questions of truth, of matters of fact, in that if you made a moral statement about what someone ought to do, that statement was either true or false, 
according to the facts of the matter, um, but that a large part of contemporary Western thought has, has, has put a distinction there between values which end up being private, subjective, relative, invented by humans or by cultures, etc., and facts which are public and objective and universal and discoverable by the natural sciences uh, through the scientific kind of methodology. Now, this distinction between fact and value, which is a distinction I would, I would question, has been historically maintained in a various different ways, three main ways, I think. You can try and uphold that distinction by the, the positivistic idea that value propositions are simply meaningless statements, back to A.J. Eyre, or by the scientific idea that value propositions are unknowable as to their truth value, or what we might call the naturalistic idea that value propositions are, are, are straightforwardly false, like um, Rosenberg was saying. So let's look at these uh, in turn. A lot of this famously brought out by the best-selling book Language, Truth and Logic, published by A.J. in, in 1936. And he put forward this uh, verification criteria or standard of logical positivism uh, where the whole discussion in philosophy was about uh, when does language even have meaning as opposed to being nonsense? How do we know that we're even t talking meaningfully when we ask questions about the big issues in life? let alone let's get on with asking them. So he put forward this criteria that said the meaning of a statement that wasn't simply true by definition, like, you know, oh, here's an unmarried bachelor, or two and two is four, uh, lay in its ability to be empirically verified, at least in principle. So the example I like to use is to say, um, suppose I were to say, uh, the moon is made of cheese. Now, okay, on the one hand, it's a silly thing to say, but it's not a nonsensical thing to say, according to the verification criteria. It would say, okay, that might be silly, but it's not nonsensical because were you to find yourself on the moon with a spoon, you know what empirical experiment to do in order to answer the question. You know, <coughs> ah, it's not made of cheese. You know. So it, it, it was a meaningful thing to say, even if it was wrong or silly or what have you. Air then drew an implication from this. Uh, he said that, to, for example, to say God exists, or indeed to say God does not exist, also, uh, is to make a metaphysical, <gasps> metaphysical, rather than scientific, you see, metaphysical utterance which cannot be either true or false. If a putative uh, proposition fails to satisfy the verification principle, and it's not a tautology, uh, then it's, it's metaphysical, and being metaphysical, it is neither true nor false, but literally senseless. So on the, the sort of positivist movement view of the Oxford School in the early 20th century there, um, both theism and atheism and agnosticism were all meaningless positions to hold. However... Uh, come back to this wasn't long in coming, uh, so it was pointed out fairly early on, but particularly famously by John Hick, um, that certain religious claims at least could fit the verification criteria, could pass those criteria. 
it was also pointed out that the verification criteria doesn't fit the verification criteria. If you apply the principle to itself, it doesn't meet its own rule. The, the verification criteria isn't a tautology. It's not true by definition. Neither is it a statement that is true because you can go and do some empirical investigation of the world that would show that it's true. It was just a, an assertion about how you should use language. Um, and Eyre famously said, well, you know, if, if, if you, I would like you to use language in the same way because I would find that very useful. Um, well, of course he would. Uh, <laughs> uh, but also at a sort of common sense and an intuitive level, if you like, um, surely don't we know certain things that do have meaning, certain statements that, that are meaningful, clearly, but which don't fit the verification uh, criteria. And indeed, um, yeah, later on, um, gave up on the whole uh, movement. Uh, he said, I just stated the verification rule dogmatically, and an extraordinary number of people seemed to be convinced by my assertion. Uh, it became the fashion for a while. Later on, he admitted the verification principle is defective. Nearly all of it was false. Logical positivism died long ago. I don't think much of language truth and logic is true. I think it's full of mistakes. Um, so, having had the critique, he did then uh, change his mind about the whole thing. But you wouldn't know that to listen to some of the contemporary discussion. One intellectual generation removed from that positivist movement, the ghost of positivism still hangs heavy over contemporary discussions about science and philosophy and God. So here's a quote from Richard Dawkins recently. He says, There is a non-overlapping and exhaustive distinction between ideas that are false or true about the real world, factual matters in a broad sense, and ideas about what we ought to do, normative or moral ideas, for which the words true and false have no meaning. So that's straight down the line, logical positivism. Um, 50 years on from the, the death of the, the movement. The epistemology of scientism, it seems to me, what it's done is, having recognised the failure of logical positivism as a criteria of meaning, then transforms that criteria from being a criterion of meaning to being a criterion of knowing. So it says, okay, that's not about the meaningfulness of language, but it is about the knowability of whether our linguistic claims are true or false. So it attributes exclusive or primary rights over knowledge to scientific, empirical, etc. methodology. So a recent example of this from um, Stephen Hawking and Leonard Mlodnow in their book The Grand Design. Well, they open up the very beginning of the book, saying philosophy is dead. Sorry, everyone else in the philosophy department at their universities, close them down, philosophy is dead. Uh, philosophy has not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly in physics, and scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. So all we philosophers should you know, give up our degrees and go and join the, the proper knowledge department, i.e. science. Well, you know, that's a, a public expression of this hardline sort of scientific view of things. Well, again, Dawkins um, expresses this kind of view when he says all beliefs fall into one of two categories. 
on the one hand, there's proper evidence-based belief. On the other hand, he says uh, the only good reason to believe that something exists is that, that it comes back to our senses in one way or another. A real sort of empiricist. You can only know things are real empirically. On the other hand, there is the improper, the improper methodology of blind faith, which, of course, is what all religious people must have. Um, faith is believing in something when there literally isn't a scrap of evidence or even in the teeth of, of evidence and so on. That's just true by definition, he says. Um, he obviously hasn't read the, the dictionaries about the definition of the term faith. Um, it's one of the, the minor terms, uh, uses of the term. Well, Peter Atkins, in a recent book, um, Oxford chemist and member of the New Atheists, in his book on being, says, I stand by my claim that the, only, that the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality. Of course, its current views are open to revision, but the, the general approach, the idea of you make observation, you compare notes, you go through the scientific method, that will forever survive as the only way of acquiring reliable knowledge. So maybe his uh, sort of softer scientism there, you might get some knowledge, but unreliably through other means, but this is the, the primary way of, of knowing. <coughs> but I think this is just as problematical as the logical positivist move. Shifting it to a principle of knowing rather than meaning doesn't really help. Um, the scientific demand that sort of boils down to, as I was saying, the, the idea that every rational belief in order to count as rational has to be justified by by evidence, if it's not just tautologically true, it's self-contradictory, because that statement, that principle itself, is one that can't be justified by evidence. Indeed, it's, it's one that entails an infinite regress that can never be justified. If, in order to count as, as rational, my belief A has to be supported by some set of evidence that points in its favour, call that B... But then my belief in the existence of B and the fact that B really genuinely does support belief in A would not count as rational unless I had some outside data, call it C, that supported that belief. And you can see that you're just going to get into an infinite regress there. And again, it's also surely open to the obvious counter-example move concerning properly basic beliefs about things like logical truths, which you have to assume in order to do science, but science can't justify. Or aesthetic and moral knowledge. You know, I think if I say, look, this picture of the Northern Lights, that's beautiful. I think that's true. I think that's something I know. That's not something that's justified by scientific methodology. Um, so Sam Harris, just to point out that I don't always disagree with atheists, and I don't think they're wrong about everything. Uh, I think Sam Harris is, is right on this. He's a sort of dissenting voice in the, the New Atheist movement about this one. And he points out that intuition denotes the most basic constituent of our faculty of knowing, of understanding. And while it's true in matters of, of ethics, he's discussing this in the context of discussing ethics, he says it's no less true in science. That the traditional opposition between reason and intuition you might also plug in fact and value, is a false one. Reason itself is intuitive to the core because any judgment that a proposition is reasonable or logical, etc., relies on intuition to find its feet. And interesting, in his book, The Moral Landscape, 
that seems to be a sort of popularised version of the, the kind of uh, moral reasoning that we had a paper on earlier today for those of us who in the, the philosophy conference. He explicitly contradicts the main thesis of his book, The Moral Landscape, in his book, The Moral Landscape, uh, in making this very point um, that uh, he contradicts the, the scientific uh, theory of knowledge. And he, he puts it this way, this is on page 73 of the hardback version of The Moral Mat- Landscape, in which he's arguing how science can determine human values. So he's, he wants to be a moral objectivist, but say... Um, that is determined by empirically observable data. Descriptive data justifies the ought. So he wants to make that move from, from is to ought. But he says this, science cannot tell us why scientifically we should value human well-being. The demand for that kind of radical justification that might be levelled by the, the moral sceptic or the moral nihilist could not be met by science, he says. Science is defined with reference to the goal of understanding the processes at work in the universe. Can we justify this goal scientifically? Of course not. Um, What evidence could prove that we should value evidence? In a a moral sense rather than just a pragmatic sense. And he's admitting, well, none. You just have to assume that moral sense. So, really, his argument in the book then boils down to grant me that there are things that are inherently moral and I can show you that you don't have to believe anything is inherently moral in order to account for morality, which doesn't work. But what he does at least get right is a rejection of a scientific theory of knowledge uh, and I happen to agree with him about moral objectivism as well, but that may uh, come up later. So science basically doesn't do values and yet I think we know values. Um, scientific theories uh, describe and predict things, but ethical theories, ethical values, prescribe and obligate our behaviour. Um, so, um, you know, if I have Aunt Mabel's martini, science will tell me what uh, mixture of chemicals I might add to that martini in order to result in Aunt Mabel's imminent demise so that I can inherit her country pile. Um, but science doesn't tell me whether that's a good thing or a bad thing for me to do. Whether I have a moral responsibility to refrain from poisoning Aunt Mabel in, in such a manner. Um, you could say that scientism entails value scepticism and vice versa. So if you, you were to argue science is the only way to know anything, it seems pretty clear that science can't provide us with any ethical knowledge. And so you'd be forced to conclude that therefore we can't have any ethical knowledge. Because you can reverse that argument by saying, look, isn't it just intuitively clear? And you've got no sufficient counter-argument to the intuitive clarity of the fact that we do have at least some moral value knowledge. And I shouldn't poison Aunt Nabel's drink. Uh, But science can't provide us with any value knowledge from which you draw the conclusion that scientism is false, that therefore science can't be the only way to know anything. It's a way of knowing things, but it can't be the only way of knowing anything. The young C.S. Lewis, as an atheist in the trenches of the First World War, wanted to 
was thinking through the, the problem of evil against God, which he wanted to use as an argument against God. Um, but thinking more deeply about this, expressed it later like this, he said, if nature, if the, the space-time matter system is the only thing in existence, if, if that description exhausts reality, as it were, then, of course, there can be no other source for our moral standards. Uh, those moral standards must, like everything else, be the, the unintended and, in that sense, meaningless outcome of blind forces. It's just what is. In a sense, he's arguing, look, if, doesn't it follow that if naturalism is true, nothing is objectively evil? He's, he's agreeing with the kind of Alex Rosenberg school of thought there. But then he's thinking, but I, I want to use the problem of evil as an argument against God because I think there are some things that are genuinely evil that any God worthy of the name ought not to allow. You see? But in order to say that there's something objectively evil, I have to give up on naturalism, since if naturalism were true, nothing would be objectively evil. <laughs> so actually, the problem of evil is an argument against naturalism. If naturalism is true, nothing's evil, something is evil, therefore naturalism is, is false. And indeed then, famously later on, um, popularised a version of the moral argument that was really a population of um, W.R. Sawley's uh, Gifford lectures on the, the moral argument that pushed this into a positive argument for theism. The defiance of the good atheist hurled at an apparently ruthless and idiotic cosmos, he, he wrote, is really an unconscious homage to something in or behind that cosmos which he recognises as, as infinitely valuable and authoritative. There's some objective value out there. For if mercy and justice and so on were really only private whims of his own, uh, he couldn't go on being indignant. The fact that he arraigns heaven itself for disregarding them means that at some level in his mind he, he knows or is assuming that they are enthroned in a higher heaven still. Uh, to kind of syllogise that away from the poetic language, um, if a wholly good personal God doesn't exist, then moral objective moral values can't exist. But again, they do, and therefore such, such a God with a small g does. So since I've now started on some of the, the train of positive arguments for God, I will get into that territory, spot the spaceship. Huh. So the moral argument, another way of, of putting it, it's very simply expressed, but of course it all comes down to whether you agree with the premises or not. Um, premise one would be something like, if objective moral values exist, then a God exists. And we'll look at some of the motivation behind these premises in a little more depth. Consider, well, what would, if you think there are objective moral facts, the kind of things that we discover to be true about reality, as Piercy was saying, rather than thinking of them as, as things that we invent. As J.L. Mackey, you know, famously, um, Mackey's book, Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong. What kind of things would they be, or do they seem to be? Uh, an objective moral fact would be uh, some kind of moral ideal. It's not just about the way things are, but how they, they, they could and, and should be. There's an, an idealness or some sort of intentionality about moral ideal. 
it's something that, that it's not merely descriptive of our behaviour, but prescriptive of our behaviour. It's something that seems to, in our experience, when we recognise it, we, we see this sense of incumbency or obligation about how we behave in a certain way, not merely a description of how we are likely to behave or not behave, how we will end up behaving or not behaving, but how we are obligated to behave whether we do or not. It's not like a moral, uh, like a, a natural law, like the laws of gravity or whatever, that just describes what do happen. But wouldn't it seem intuitive, at least, to think that an intentional idea or a character or some sort of instantiation of a moral ideal would have something to do with a mind? That a prescription would require a prescriber by its very nature? Or that an obligation must require someone to whom one is rightfully obligated? In the sense that I can't be obligated by something non-personal. I can't be obligated by a chair or a table or by my, the evolutionary past of my species or what have you. And many atheists, well not all atheists, but, but a large school of atheists, have sort of agreed with this thought. So, for example, Jean-Paul Sartre so it, uh, that existentialists find it extremely disturbing that God no longer exists, or well, it's not reasonable to believe in him. For along with his disappearance goes the possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven, in a transcendent realm that we discover. Because there would no longer be any a priori good, since there'd be no infinite and perfect consciousness to conceive of it. Or Julian Bugini says, if there's no single moral authority, no one who rightfully obligates our behaviour, in a way that transcends our obligations to ourselves or societies or what have you, then we have, in some sense, to create values for ourselves. And that means that moral claims are not true or false. You may disagree with me, but you can't say I've made a factual error, argues Bugini. Or Mackey, who I mentioned a little while ago in, uh, in the, his other book, the famous book, The Miracle of Theism, says, look, if there are objective values they make the existence of a, a god more probable than it would have been without them. Thus, he argued, we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of God, because he's an atheist, he's arguing for atheism in this book, so what does he do with this situation when he does this? He says, if we adopted instead a subjectivist account of morality, this problem would not arise. And that's, in a sense, why he's pushed into moral subjectivism in order to defend his atheism. Or more recently, um, Michael Roos in his book, Atheism, What Everyone Needs to Know, says whatever, on one hand he says, whatever else morality might be, it is not just an emotion or a preference or some sort of subjective thing. He says stomping on little babies for fun is wrong, even if the whole world thinks otherwise. The question then is, is where does the objectivity of morality lie? Where's the grounding of this discovered fact. He argues that natural solutions don't seem to be the answer, that Platonist solutions don't seem to be the answer. He asks, is God the default position? He says the objectivity of morality is an illusion. This is, again, 
he's pushed to this conclusion. The objectivity of morality is an illusion put in place by our genes to keep us social. This is the world of non-belief and such are the consequences. He just has to bite the bullet, as we, we say. So really, I think, boils down to the question, if you kind of follow it thus far, the question would become, well, which is really the bigger problem? Um, having to believe that some kind of a god exists or having to believe in moral subjectivism. Kind of, you pay your money, you takes your choice, as it were. as always the case with arguments. So the second premise of the moral argument might be something like objective moral values do exist, and if you buy both of those, then you end up buying the conclusion that follows, of course. And of course, again, many atheists will argue that objective moral values do exist. They would just reject the, the linkage between them and belief in some kind of a god. So Karl Nielsen famously argued that moral tru- truisms are as available to me or any atheist as they are to the believer. Of course they are. The, the moral argument is not an argument about moral knowing, but about accounting for the moral facts that atheists and theists equally know. And he argues that you can be as confident of the truth, the facticity of these moral utterances, uh, they're more justified than any sceptical philosophical theory that would lead you to question them. So on sort of an intuitive level, he says any argument for scepticism about moral facts is going to rest on premises that are less intuitively plausible than the intuitively plausible fact that it is wrong to stomp on small children just for fun. <laughs> uh, atheist Peter Cave, again, defends the sort of proper basicality of objective moral value. He says, whatever sceptical arguments might be brought against our belief that killing the innocent is morally wrong, we're more certain that the killing is morally wrong than that the, the sceptical argument is sound. Torturing an innocent child for the sheer fun of it is morally wrong, full stop. Or Russ Schaefer-Lander, who's written a, a couple of, uh, I think, really uh, interesting good books in this area, uh, argues that some moral views just are better than others, irrespective of the sincerity of the individuals or the cultures or the societies that endorse them. And since uh, some moral views are true, that means others are false, and my thinking them doesn't make them so, because individuals or indeed whole societies can be seriously mistaken when it comes to morality. And the best explanation of that fact is that there are some moral standards that are not of our making, that don't depend upon our individual or social or cultural circumstances or beliefs or rule passings or what have you. So to sum up the the moral argument, I like the way the the Welsh philosopher, I went to the University of Wales first off, so Welsh philosopher H.P. Owen famously um, put the, the argument in terms of resolving a paradox about our moral experience. It says, on the one hand, If you think there are objective moral claims, they're things that, by nature, transcend every human person. But on the other hand, it's just nonsensical, it's contradictory to assert that impersonal claims are entitled to the allegiance of our wills. The only solution to that paradox is to suppose that the order of objective moral claims is in fact rooted in some transcendent personality. And as Aquinas says, you know, this is what we all call God. 
as Bill Craig also would use this kind of argument, adds God's nature, at the conclusion of such an argument, God's nature defines what goodness is. It's not as though God lives up to some external standard and does a good job at being good. Uh, the regress has to stop somewhere. Um, in this view, that regress is stopped by the character, the necessary character of God himself. One might make very similar arguments in the realm of aesthetics as well as ethics. Uh, so um, the atheist Ronald Dworkin, uh, in his last book, died recently, um, says some interesting things about the relationship between naturalism and um, aesthetics, which, when you piece them together, seem to me to give you the, the wherewithal for a sort of aesthetic argument for, for theism. He says, for example, that on naturalism, he thinks there is really fundamentally no such thing as beauty in an, in an objective sense, in a naturalistic worldview. He also says, we find, we find much in the natural world beautiful, but to a naturalist, this beauty is just a matter of our reactions to these sights, the, the pleasure we happen to take in them. This was the view famously argued by, by Hume. To the religious attitude, they are the discoveries of an innate, innate beauty. But interestingly elsewhere, in the same book, even the same page as he just said that, he, he goes on to say, still, we know that the sunset is beautiful. But he never wrestles with, well, what am I going to do with that apparent tension within his worldview? My MPhil work at, at Norwich, part of it was um, cashing out objective accounts of beauty and going with um, G.E. Moore, who in the Principia Ethica argued that the beautiful should be defined as that of which the admiring contemplation is good in itself. So that the question whether it is truly beautiful or not depends on the objective question of whether the whole in question is, or is not truly good. Um, can my appreciation of things in the world out there be ordinate or inordinate, as Augustine would argue? Um, and then I went on from there to discussing God as the maximally beautiful being, uh, a la perfect being theology for Mansell, who, of course, back in the 12th century, famously defined God as the being than which no greater can be conceived. They say God is that being than which no more beautiful can be conceived. Which gives me a nice little introduction to talking very briefly about the ontological argument. So with Plantinga you could argue that a maximally great being must exist if its existence is possible. Again, this gets us into talking about possible worlds, semantics and so on. Uh, Plantinga argues that the existence of a maximally great being is possible and that it follows that a maximally great being therefore exists and does so necessarily. And you could really boil this down to the simple syllogism that if it is possible that God exists, then he does, that it is possible, and that therefore he does. Now, of course, in the face of it, it's a logically valid argument. All the discussion really centres upon premise two. That is a premise that, of course, the atheist is not going to just grant the theist in this uh, context. Uh, so as Craig notes, most philosophers would agree 
that if God's existence is possible, then he must exist. But the whole question is, is God's existence possible? Um, the atheist has to maintain that it's impossible that God exists. I think that's what the argument very usefully shows in the discussion. It shows that denying that God exists isn't really on a par with denying that the Loch Ness Monster exists. Uh, it's a stronger claim than that. Of course, philosophers have then famously put forward arguments trying to show that the concept of God is incoherent in some way, which is what you'd have to show. But um, interesting to note that the atheist Richard Carrier said he doesn't buy atheological arguments from incoherence because he thinks they're not valid. Any, any definition of God or his properties that is illogical can just be revised. There's a lot of room for re- revising the properties of God, so the claim is only that he has logically possible properties, if you show that to have a certain property would be logically impossible for God to have, then, of course, the theist no longer needs to claim that God has that property, because no theist would claim that God has logically impossible properties. Um, So, in effect, says Carrier, arguments from incoherence are really arguments, not really arguments for atheism, but rather arguments for the reform of theology. We had a little bit of discussion earlier on in the conference today about uh, issues about mind and body and so on. And I think there's some very fascinating issues, particularly, again, in some of these more sort of public square discussions at the moment, particularly about um, the whole issue of intentionality of mind. Um, so to use an example made famous by C.S. Lewis, he talks about you know, an astronomer looking through their telescope at a star you know, hundreds of light years away and so on, and that that astronomer stands in all sorts of physical relationships to the star. Um, but that it is obviously true that that astronomer also has thoughts about the star. He might have thoughts that are true about it, thoughts that are false about it, but he has thoughts that are about the star. But what kind of physical relationship is having a thought about a star? What kind of physical property is being about? What sort of physical property is being true or being false? Um, the atheist Raymond Tallis, in his book um, Aping Mankind, puts this in a very interesting way. He says, Intentionality tears the seamless fabric of causality of the causally closed material universe. It points in a direction opposite to causation and is incapable of being accommodated in the materialist world picture as it is currently construed. Rosenberg spends a long time discussing this in his book Atheist Guide to Reality and I think his discussion is so fascinating that I'm going to quote him at at some length. But again, it's interesting to see how he, he gets pushed from his sort of description, his ontology, about what kind of things are real, and he ends up having to bite the bullet to retain that ontology by saying, when consciousness convinces you that you or your mind or your brain has thoughts about things, it's wrong. And that's what he's pushed to saying. And here's why. There's sort of an argument against physicalism, naturalism, that you could put like this. Purely physical realities can't have thoughts about anything, but we have thoughts about things, so we can't be purely physical realities. Um, he argues no chunk of matter 
Take any chunk of matter. None of them can just by itself be about another chunk of matter, he argues, without a mind to interpret the first chunk of matter as being about the second chunk of matter. He's arguing that there's an irreducible need for interpretation going on here. So he says the brain can't have thoughts about Paris or about anything, piling up lots of, say, neural circuits that in and of themselves are not having any property of aboutness, can't turn them into thoughts about stuff out there in the world. You add lots of things together that don't have aboutness, that doesn't suddenly sort of magically buy you aboutness, he argues. So he says, um, you know, we believe that Paris is the capital of France. So somewhere in our brain is stored this proposition that Paris is the capital of France, somehow encoded in, say, neural connections, right, on a physicalist picture. But here's the difficulty. What makes the, the Paris set of neurons, as it were, a set of neurons that is about Paris? Um, the first clump of matter, the bit of wet stuff in my brain, uh, the Paris neurons, is about this second chunk of matter, Paris. But how can the first clump, the Paris neurons, be about the second clump? How can one clump of stuff anywhere be about some other clump of stuff anywhere at all. Um, the Paris neurons, for example, aren't shaped like Paris. <laughs> uh, they won't look like Paris from any angle. You know, what is the, what's the physical connection here, as it were? Um, could, here's one suggestion, could the Paris neurons be about Paris in the way that, say, uh, you know, a red octagon is about stopping But the more consciousness thinks about it, the more certain we are that the shapes and the squiggles outside of our head are about stuff because of the way the thoughts in our heads are about them. But this can't be correct, not if thoughts about stuff are sets of neurons wired together and he says they can't be anything else because that's all that the materialist worldview gives me to, to work with here. So a red octagon or any other clump of matter, say ink marks on paper or pixels on a screen, is about something else only because it's been interpreted by someone to be about it. Now, if the Paris neurons are about Paris the same way that a red octagon is about stopping, then there has to be something in the brain that interprets the Paris neurons as being about Paris. But that interpreter could only be, on the materialist picture, another part of the brain... But how can the neural interpreter interpret the Paris neurons as being about Paris? You'd have to have different parts that are about the two different things, about Paris and about the Paris neurons and about the fact that one is about the other. And we enter onto a, a sort of regress here. Um, we see the trouble coming. We started out trying to explain one case of neurons being about something. Now we have two cases of neurons being about something. And that way lies a regress that will prevent us from ever understanding what we wanted to figure out. What, he, what we need, he argues, to get, to get out of this regress is some, some set of neurons that's about some stuff outside the brain without having to be interpreted by, by anyone or anything, by some other part of the brain even, as being about stuff. 
He says there is no such physical stuff. There are just fermions and bosons and combinations of them and higher-level combinations and neurons and so on. None of that stuff is just all by itself about any other stuff. There's nothing in the universe, including all the neurons in their brain, that just by its nature or composition can do this job of being about some other clump of matter. So if, if purely physical realities can't have thoughts about anything, what do we do? He ends up saying, when consciousness asserts, assures us that we have thoughts about stuff, it has to be wrong. Because it's just another physical process. That's kind of, that forces him to bite the bullet and say, so, you're wrong when you think you have thoughts about things. <laughs> Reminds me of a brief comment uh, in the book After Physicalism by um, Benedict Paul Gauquet. He says, if you want to be a physicalist, you have to deny the obvious. He seems to be a sort of case in, in point with Rosenberg. Um, intentional consciousness can't be an illusion. Um, Rosenberg says it's, a, it's an illusion that you have to explain away. That's the job to do. Um, I mean, an illusion just is a mistaken conscious idea about how things are. Rosenberg states that the way the brain deals with introspection is totally different from the way introspection tells us it does. But, of course, what he implicitly means by that is that introspection about how the brain deals with introspection is misleading about the truth. So he can't even state his position without implicitly assuming the contrary. Um, Indeed, he explicitly contradicts himself in the book by repeatedly claiming to think about things. I mean, he says, I am thinking about Paris. Um, he says, consciousness tells you in no uncertain terms what the content of your thought is, what your thought is about. It's about the statement that Paris is the capital of France. That is the thought you're thinking. It just can't be denied. You can't be wrong about the content of your thought. And yet he also says that you must be. So something uh, is amiss. So if purely physical realities can't have thoughts about things, it is undeniable that we do have thoughts about things. And it would follow from those two premises that we're not purely physical realities and that naturalism's not true. Now for the final uh, little section, I want to start talking a little bit more about how um, discoveries of natural sciences feed into the discussion of natural theology. And it's not that I think, a la Dawkins, that um, arguments for or against the existence of God are scientific arguments in, in the modern sense of the term, but only in the ancient sense of the term, going back to Aquinas. But they can feed in, and they've fed in in interesting ways in recent years, and I'll take as a structure for doing this, looking at how Anthony Flew uh, changed his mind on the God issue uh, towards the uh, early years of the uh, 21st century. Uh, if you've not heard of him before, so many of the philosophers here will, will have done, um, Flew from uh, 1923, died in 2010, was one of the most renowned atheists of the, of the 20th century, certainly, um, 
very widely uh, published in this whole sort of area, debated uh, many theist thinkers publicly and so on. And was particularly famous for mounting an argument that said that the, the onus of proof, the burden of proof, laid on the theist side of the discussion and that one should assume that atheism is true until and unless one is given a good reason for believing in God. Now, I'm not going to go into that whole discussion. I'm just going to go on to how he actually came to think that that burden of proof had been met, partly because of developments in modern science. So Flew a public announced that he'd given up atheism in uh, around 2004, uh, saying that he thought the case for what he called an, an Aristotelian god a god with the characteristics of power and intelligence, uh, is now much stronger than it ever was before. So again, not a fully orbed religious view of God, but a sort of minimal philosophic theism or deism. And in an interview around the time of the publication of that book, um, which was uh, co-authored with a theist called Y. Abraham Varghese, um, who put in a lot of the illustrations for him because he was finding it hard to... Uh, produce uh, a book at his age, but he, you know, he said this book reflects my views, and he gave interviews at the time wherein he gave the same arguments that are in the book. Uh, and flew in an interview, said this: science, uh, as such a science, qua science, can't furnish an argument for God's existence or or against it. I don't think. Um, again, despite what you know the Dawkinses of the world say, but. He thought that the laws of nature, life with its, its teleological, goal-directed organisation, and the very existence of the universe could only be explained, or could be best explained, perhaps we should say, in the light of an intelligence that explains both its own existence and that of the world. Such a discovery of the divine does not come through experiments and equations from science, but through an understanding of the structure that science is unveil and map but it's a, a philosophical and metaphysical understanding and account it's an attempt to fit the findings of the natural sciences within a synoptic world view that ends up being a theological one so let's look at uh, those three examples that were uh, of particular interest to Flu starting off with the existence of the universe now Marcus uh, Chow the the whole Big Bang cosmology developed in the last century uh, describes the, the evolution, the change over time of the universe from a hot, dense state. But it does not say anything about what brought the universe into existence. I, I often meet students who somehow think that there's a, a sort of alter, a false alternative between believing in a creator and believing in Big Bang theory, because the Big Bang theory explains why there's a universe. It, it, Big Bang Theory doesn't explain why there's a universe. It describes the past history of the universe. But it doesn't answer the question of why is that past history of the universe as described by Big Bang cosmology true? See, that's a philosophical, metaphysical question about the scientific theory. Big Bang Theory is a description of the cosmic past, not an explanation of why that description is true. In 1992, Flew was already beginning to mull about this and admitted to being embarrassed by the contemporary cosmological consensus that the universe had a beginning. Um, you know, he was brought up in, in the age where the classic idea of an eternal 
universe, um, famously held by Aristotle, still held sway. He said that the Big Bang was in tension with what he thought of as the, the naturalistically comfortable idea that the universe, without end, but also without beginning, plus whatever are found to be its most fundamental physical features, laws and so on, those are the things that we should accept as explanatory ultimates. But he conceded it's certainly neither easy nor comfortable to maintain that naturalistic position in the face of the Big Bang story. But I guess he was kind of saying, you know, it's a young science, not all the data is in, maybe we'll go back to one of these oscillating universe models or, or whatever. The atheist philosopher of science, Bradley Monton, more recently has said, if the universe had a beginning, then that does lend support to what's called the, the Kalam cosmological argument. And at the, the conference a few years ago, in honour of Stephen Hawking's 70th birthday, the atheist cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin gave a whole lecture that you can find on YouTube um, going through lots of recent models of the Big Bang and arguing that all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. Indeed, a new scientist in an editorial reporting on that conference um, described the, the implications uh, of that talk in, in the following manner. So the, the Big Bang is now part of the furniture of modern cosmology. Many physicists have been fighting a rearguard action against it for decades, largely because of its kind of theological overtones. If you have an instant of creation, don't you need a creator? But cosmologists thought they had a workaround. Um, over the years, they've tried on several different models of the universe that dodged the need for a beginning whilst still requiring a Big Bang. And you might think, how on earth could you have a model of the universe that, that had a Big Bang but didn't have a beginning? Well, for example, I mentioned the oscillating universe model, the idea that you have a... Yes, you did have a Big Bang, but then you'll have a contraction and, a, and a, a big crunch, and then it'll bounce, and you'll have another Big Bang. And maybe you've had an infinite series of such oscillations, say. Um, so that would accommodate the evidence for a Big Bang, but would say, but the universe, taken as a whole, you know, didn't have a beginning. Just our sort of local phase of its existence, as it were. But recent research has shot such theories full of holes, it now seems certain that the universe did have a beginning. Not merely that there was a Big Bang to our phase of it, but that the universe had a beginning. And Vilenkin famously argues um, the same, the same in, in this conference. Without an escape clause, said this editorial, physicists and philosophers must finally answer a problem that's been nagging at them for the best part of 50 years. How do you get a universe complete with the laws of physics out of nothing? Well, here's one way of putting it. Um, if Big Bang cosmology and so on shows that there was a first physical event, because there was a finite past, there was a first physical event, and if you think that every physical event by its nature must have a cause outside of itself, perhaps because of the kind of classic arguments about contingency here. Um, suppose I ask you to loan me a book and you say I don't have an a copy, but I'll ask my friend to lend it to me, and then I'll lend it to you. Um, but suppose your friend says the same thing to you when you go to them to borrow the book, and so on ad infinitum. 
Um, well, surely it's clear that, first of all, if that process of asking to borrow the book goes on ad infinitum, then I will never get the book. Um, and if I do get the book, then that must mean that the process that led to me getting it wasn't one that went on ad infinitum. In other words, somewhere down the line of requests to borrow the book, someone had to actually have the book without having to get it from somewhere else. Now, if you can draw an analogy between that and being caused, getting the book and getting existence, as it were, Richard Purchill, for example, argues that those same two principles would apply. If the process of everything getting its existence from something went on to infinity then the, the thing in question wouldn't have existence. And if the thing has existence, the process can't have gone on to infinity. In other words, there was something that had existence without having to receive it from something else. So contingent things, as classically argued, um, entail uh, at least one necessary thing, as it were. So if anything, contingent must have a cause outside of itself, cause in a very general sense here. And if physical events are contingent in that way, then every physical event must have a cause outside of itself. Um, so, back to our first kind of half of an argument here, there was the first physical event, but every physical event has a cause outside of itself, which we've just argued for, from which it would follow that the first physical event had a cause outside of itself. But that gets really interesting when you come back to the fact that there was a first physical event that therefore must have had a cause outside of itself. And note that the cause of the first physical event can't have been a physical cause because there are no physical causes outside of the first event when you're just having the first event. You, know, you can't say, what caused the first physical event? Oh, it was the previous physical event. You know, what previous? There wasn't a previous physical event because we're talking about the first one by definition. Um, now, if all of that is correct, of course, it follows that, therefore, the first physical event must have had a non-physical cause outside of itself, because causes are either physical or non-physical. It's just a rule of the excluded middle, which you can see is beginning to get along some theological territory, but we'll leave it there. So in 2004, Flew said, there does seem to be a reason for a first cause. Uh, Bella Willard puts it, the, the dependent character of all physical states, together with the completeness of the series of dependencies underlying the existence of any particular given physical state, employs, implies at least one uh, non-physical state of being. Um, the whole area of design thinking is a huge area. I'll just touch on it briefly, but one um, modern development that comes from the sciences, a couple of elements that come from the sciences. Um, back in the Scottish Enlightenment, Thomas Reed, for example, um, cites the capacity to, to spot the signs of intelligence just as part of the basic equipment of the human mind. Just as, you know, there's, there's an intuitively strong argument here. Again, where is, the, where is the onus of proof? It's flu right to say the onus of proof is on those who want to, to mount an argument or not. But let's mount one anyway. seems to have stopped working. There we go. Um, certainly, when we start looking at some of the things that we've discovered uh, in, the, in the years since through you know, the invention of the, the microscope and so on, and look at some of the uh, biomechanical machinery of life and so on, um, the impression of design 
as folks like Dawkins and so on admit, uh, is pretty overwhelming. But as a, a basis for actually mounting some sort of argument rather than just intuition here, here's one recent development described by uh, Bill Craig. It talks about um, statisticians developing um, criteria for design detection that's used in areas like cryptography and, and so on. As the basis for design inference, you need both high improbability of an event and a conformity to an independently given pattern. And it's not enough just to have one or the other. You've got to have both together. Um, something called a particular kind of complexity called specified complexity. So he gives this example. He says, you know, a, a, in a poker game, um, any deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. That's one deal of cards of that number of cards out of all of the possible deals of cards of that number of cards. So that they all have the same improbability. Nonetheless, um, if you find that every time a certain player deals the cards, when you're playing poker, he gets all four aces, you're going to be highly suspicious and quite rightly so, and it won't avail him to say, what, any deal of cards is just as unlikely as any other, what are you complaining about? You know, there's obviously something going on. Uh, so Cicero <laughs> uh, famously argued there, the Roman orator, um, if countless numbers of copies of 20 one letters of the Greek alphabet uh, were thrown together into some receptacle and then shaken out on the ground, would it be possible that they should produce the, the annals of Aeneas? Uh, I doubt whether chance could possibly succeed in producing even a single verse. Is really, in modern terms, arguing that this kind of specified complexity of information must have an external cause. And that Greek letters, say, don't contain that information that's in the Greek verse that they spell out. So if you see a verse in such letters, that information had to come from outside of those letters. And since we know that chance is very unlikely to produce much specified complexity, it can produce some, but, but not much, or by definition, if you set the probability bound high enough, it, it's not going to produce it reasonably. But we do know that minds easily inform matter with information you can mount a sort of argument to the best explanation, at least, that the best explanation of a verse of the Annals of Aeneas written in Greek letters, printed on, like, scrabble pieces, as it were, uh, would be that some mind informed the arrangement of those letters deliberately. Or as how Taylor puts it, if you receive a letter written in a language or in a mathematical code... You can't discern the origin of the language or the code from looking at the chemistry of the ink and the paper. Mm. That's a, a necessary condition of what you're seeing, but it's by no means a sufficient condition. The message is explained not by the chemistry of the ink and the paper, but by the mind that, that wrote it. Um, so with Scrabble pieces, as we pick them out of a bag, you, know, you pick out a long series of Scrabble letters, that's just nonsense, it's a very complex event, but you can easily avoid saying it was designed. Maybe it was designed deliberately to mimic chance, but just from looking at that pattern of letters, it's not reasonable for you to, to punt to design at that point. It's complex, but it is not specified. Equally, uh, you know, draw out the letters D-O-G. Yes, it's, okay, it's specified. The English word dog you already know about. It matches that independent pattern, but it is not complex. It's not at all unlikely that that would happen. So again, you can easily get away without invoking design. 
But if you see that sentence from Plato's book, The Laws, spelt out in Scrabble letters, you'd be pretty obstinateist to say, oh, isn't it wonderful what chance can do? You know, um, It is both complex and specified by, say, the, the rules of grammar and so on. Richard Dawkins endorses this, this point in an article in Free Inquiry. He talks about the way in which you know, an arrangement of watch parts disassembled from one another in a, in a box is very complex, just like a watch is very complex, but it's obviously not designed. Um, whereas a, a watch, where all those parts are arranged in the specific way that means they function together to tell the time, is both complex and specified. And he says specified complexity takes care of the very sensible point that in this uh, disposition of its parts, a pile of detached watch parts is as improbable as a fully functioning, what he calls genuinely complicated watch. But there is an objective difference between them. He says what's specified about a watch is that it's improbable in the specific direction of telling the time. You know, it's it's a, a very unlikely subset, functional subset of the possible arrangements of those watch parts, as it were. So you see someone enter four-digit number into a cash machine and they get money out of it. You don't think to yourself, oh, they were lucky. You know, maybe they were, but the most reasonable explanation, surely, is oh, they, they knew the PIN number for the account card that they've stuck in the machine there. When a complex event matches an independently given or functionally specified pattern, we naturally and quite rightly infer design. And that, that's in the case of an event with only um, one in 10,000 chance of of happening on the first occasion. So if you take that kind of development of design detection criteria and apply it within design arguments, I think it's very interesting, particularly if you look at the, the origin of life issue and the fine-tuning issue. Um, atheist philosopher Simon Bradley Monton notes that when you're looking at the origin of life, this is you're talking about preconditions for Darwinian evolution. So you can't invoke Darwinian evolution as your explanation. You're, you're looking for the origin of something capable of undergoing evolution by copying its information differentially and having mistakes and, and so on. But as Freeman Dyson puts it, the origin of life is the deepest mystery, he thinks, in the whole of science. There's an enormous gap between the simplest living cell and the most complicated naturally occurring mixture of non-living chemicals. And we have no idea when and how this gap was was crossed um, equally. Um, Paul Davis uh, recently calls this one of the great outstanding mysteries of the origin of life. Nobody has a clue how it happened. We haven't a clue how life began, etc. Um, and Nagel makes the same kind of point in his uh, Mind and Cosmos about there being problems of probability with respect to the formation from dead matter of physical systems capable of undergoing evolution and getting more complex the more we learn about the intricacy of the genetic code and its control of the chemical processes of life and so on, the harder those problems seem. It's a gap that increasing knowledge makes wider rather than a, a gap that shrinks according to increasing knowledge. Um, atheist Eugene Koonin, who's a specialist on the origin of life issue, uh, says that the final outcome seems almost a miracle, that the, the steps necessary for the origin of life uh, are so exceedingly unlikely and he ends up invoking the idea of multiple universes to give himself enough probability resources to uh, to explain it 
So Flew thought that the more that was discovered about the richness and inherent intelligence of life, as he called it, the less it seemed likely that a chemical soup could just sort of magically generate the informational content of the, of the genetic code or its precursors, um, arguing that this discovery by Watson and Crick in the, in the 50s of DNA and so on makes it inordinately difficult to begin to think about some sort of naturalistic theory of the origin of the first reproducing organism. On the one hand, he thought naturalistic efforts to, to do that had failed, and the more knowledge we got, the more unlikely it seemed. And on the other hand, that this complexity just you know, intuitively looked like the works of intelligence. But I think it's interesting to see that that kind of discovery actually passes through this, these criteria developed in other scientific areas. Um, I'm just going to skip this, just some of the research on the, the probabilities of the the origin of the, the minimal set of folding proteins that you would need to get the functions of, of something capable of independent life going. But the argument would boil down to something like this, as argued by um, Stephen Mayer in his recent book, Signature in the Cell, that we've got this criteria of design detection about specified c complexity and that life, particularly that the functional information encoded in genetic and epigenetic information, passes that criteria and so you can mount a best explanation uh, argument that makes an appeal to design. Something, again, quote from Richard Dawkins that makes a similar interesting point. He says, at the bottom of my garden is a large willow tree and it's pumpy down, pumping downy seeds into the air containing DNA whose coded characters spell out specific instructions for building willow trees. Those fluffy specks are literally spreading instructions for making themselves. It's raining instructions out there. It's raining programs. That is not a metaphor. That's the plain truth. It's not an analogy that's being made here between the information content of life and, say, binary code or whatever. It is a code. It so Flew thought that uh, recent DNA research, etc., had provided materials for a more powerful argument to design, that intelligence must have been involved in some way in getting off the ground something capable of undergoing evolution in any sense. And a similar argument would be mounted about the, at an even more improbabilistic level about the fine-tuning of the basic constants and laws of, of the universe. Um, very briefly, um, Craig puts it as a disjunct between the possible explanations one might point to. Um, and I think Stephen Hawking, back to the grand design, um, he argues that the, this, this complexity of the, the laws of the universe isn't demanded by logical, physical principle. Things could have been otherwise. And indeed, those who like to punt to a, a multiverse explanation to explain away the apparent specified complexity of fine-tuning are thereby admitting that that's, that's the case. They, they have to, to admit that universes could be different than the way this one is in order to invoke the concept of multiple different universes. Um, which means we don't punt to physical necessity, logical necessity, but how do we make a principled decision between chance or design? Again, it's not simply on the basis of saying, oh, look, something really complex happened. But it's that the, the very complex thing that happened happens to fall within the subset of things that could have happened that make 
interesting complex things possible rather than not. Um, so Roger Penrose, just to give one example of these fine-tuning conditions, uh, thinks that the, the odds of our universe's life-permitting low entropy condition is one chance in 10 to the 10 to the 123, which is a lot more improbable than your pin number, by the way. <laughs> a lot more. I mean, that's a number so big that you couldn't, you literally can't write that number down, even if you used every fundamental particle in the universe to put a digit on, which you can't anyway, but, you know. So Hawking admits for our theoretical models of the Big Bang to work, the, the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. In other words, he's saying, yes, it, it seems to exhibit specified complexity. That's basically the same way of saying the same thing which if you combine again with this criterion of design detection, that gives you a best explanation argument to some kind of design. And again, Flew thought that this evidence was so strong that indeed he flipped to saying the burden of proof is on those who want to argue the contrary of the design position now. So he went from saying the burden of proof is on those who want to argue for design to saying now it's on those who want to argue against. So... You can spot the last spaceship. The relation between science and natural philosophy and scientia in the broader sense or natural theology, metaphysics, I think I'd express it like this. That, all that stuff that we were doing with design and invoking some kind of intelligence had to be involved in the origin of life or in the fine-tuning of the universe and so on. I think I'm happy to say that that's, that's science. But when you come to the question of, well, what more specifically is the nature of the designer? Is that source of design a supernatural being? Is it a supernatural being that deserves the name God in any sense? Um, does he have properties traditionally associated with God beyond mere intelligence or uh, intelligence and sufficient power to program life or whatever you know um, then you're definitely into metaphysics you've gone beyond the boundaries of of the natural sciences and if you're particularly you need you need to move from this conclusion at the end end of sort of intelligent design theory of the best explanation of life includes an appeal to intelligent design from some source capable of doing it to get to the conclusion, therefore, the best explanation of life and the universe and everything is, is, in some sense, worthy of the name theistic, you need another premise. And you need a premise to the effect that the best explanation of the conclusion in three is going to be generally theistic. And one might get there by appealing to other more purely metaphysical arguments, by appealing to the moral and aesthetic and ontological arguments, by appealing to the difficulties that alternative worldviews like naturalism have in coping with intentionality or qualia or whatever uh, by looking at cosmological arguments, which is an issue pointed to and raised by Big Bang cosmology. But that's germane to one of the premises of a metaphysical argument about the existence of God. It's not a, you know, the clam cosmological argument is not a scientific argument for God. Um, even if you get rid of a scientific theory of knowledge. Um, but once at least you have got rid of a scientific theory of knowledge, you're then open to the metaphysical reflection upon what we're discovering about the world 
in areas including science, but also including, you know, our, our basic, properly basic philosophical intuitions about things like morality and beauty and the way our minds work and so on. And, and putting that all together in, in the search for a, a consistent synoptic worldview, uh, well, I think it certainly leads me in the direction of theism, but whether it does you or not, I'll leave that to you uh, to think through. Thank you very much. and go a very sort of austere yeah. route. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's a trend that seems to be ongoing at the moment. You know, I'm not a sociologist yeah. or psychologist or whatever, but I can certainly observe that there, there does seem to be this trend of, of atheists, as you say, or agnostics, wanting to spice up their ontology beyond uh, a materialistic or physicalistic or sort of um, naturalistic worldview in, in the way that the sort of um, Rosenbergs of the world cash it out. So you notice right, when I had the quote from um, uh, Thales, he said, intentionality breaks the bounds of a naturalistic worldview as it is currently conceived, he said at the end. So he's wanting to leave room for adjusting what you mean by a naturalistic worldview so that you can say, I believe that there are these in- inherent teleologies or intentionalities within nature um, which of course is a view that goes back to like you know Aristotle Aristotelian thought has a sort of element of, of that and that's the way that Thomas Nagel tries to go he, he says there are these things that, that break the bounds of what we at the moment consider to be a physicalist naturalistic etc world view um, but as an atheist I don't want to Bite the, be forced to bite the bullet of emitting some sort of supernaturalism, as it were. So what I'm looking for is a way to reconceive naturalism in a way that will will fit in more, as it were. That you've got to fit in more. Uh, and I think, you know, I think the question is be- in the discussion seems to be becoming more um, in order to fit in these things that don't fit within naturalism as currently described. Is there a consistent way of reconceiving naturalism whilst it's still being worthy of the name naturalism without it becoming some kind of a supernaturalism by another name? You know, a rose by any other name kind of thing. Um, uh, and that's, I think, you know, where the really interesting cutting edge of the d- discussion is appar- appearing to be at the moment. Mm. 
And much like women, there's, there's a swimmer argument somewhere about um, it's the madman argument where you're yeah. coached by the madman and he's going to deal. Uh, it was like an insane number of cards, something like six decks, because mm. only if they're all ace of spades mm. that you get let through. And they're all ace of spades, and then the swimmer's like, no, 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 see, it's got to be, mm. it absolutely has to be planned. And if that kept happening, then mm. it would happen. Because we've only got one universe to go, how are we making these probability judgments about how probable it is that something happens? Right, yeah, yeah. So this is unpacking the, the, the sense of probability that's being invoked. Um, but it's, it's notice it's a sense of improbability that, that's being comfortably invoked by, by the atheist cosmologists and so on who, who delve in the area. They think it, there's a sensible sense of probability. That can be that can be talked about here, um, and it's uh, kind of the, then- the sense of, of running thought experiments whereby you can you can conceive that it's possible that things could have been different, um, and that some of those ways of things being different would have you know different results upon what is what is possible. You know whether you get chemistry possible, whether you get a universe that lasts more than a nanosecond before it collapses in on itself because of the gravity constant's too high or flies apart too quickly because it's too low and so no matter ever congeals or or what have you. Um, So I think really one would have to go to um, that sort of scientific stroke philosophy of science mathematics discussion about the the sense of probability but I'm fairly comfortable that there's a, a meaningful sense of probability being invoked there. It's not that we have to be able to look at lots of different universes in order to make that statistical judgment, that there's a meaningful sense of probability that's being invoked. Um, and that seems to be the the consensus, really, among people of different worldviews on the issue. And what, what the sort of burning issue is, is what is the best explanation of that discovery, as it were, you know, is the best explanation design? Is the best explanation chance? Is it multiple universes? Is it physical? You know, is it logical necessity? Is it this sort of anthropic self-selection kind of argument, etc.? Yeah, Sam Harris. Yeah. Couldn't you take that, like, like, still maintain the? Because you know you said scientism is the it's the only or the best. Mm. You like maintain. You couldn't maintain the only, but you mm. maintain the just. The, can you still maintain it's the best way? Right. Even with even with the two plus two. Say mm. for example. Uh, so say you have to even if that's not what you think faith is, you you have to have an element of faith in the same way that people have faith in God in say, Hume's inductivism principle for science to work yeah, or something yeah. like that. You could maintain that, but then still maintain that science is the better The best, the best, yeah. Okay, so yes, so what's called a, a soft scientism rather than a hard scientism often in the literature um, would admit that there are sources of knowledge beyond science but would say that they're less reliable sources of knowledge. And of course, as you say, that is compatible with mounting some sort of natural theological project of arguments for God that are not scientific arguments, but they're still 
about knowledge and they're still arguments and worthy of respect and, and so on. Um, that said, I think my, my, my issue with the distinction and, and thinking along that lines is that the hard scientism is just I think plainly self-contradictory. But what the soft scientism ends up saying is that the, there's this, the most reliable form of knowledge we have is science. But it, it seems to me clear that science itself is based upon and presupposes non-scientific sources of knowledge. So, um, belief in the laws of logic being valid, um, etc. Belief that we have generally reliable observation of belief that there really is a physical world independent of us. Um, belief that the world is older than five minutes old and didn't just get created five minutes ago, complete with every apparent sign of age, and so on, to use a Russell thought experiment. So there's all sorts of beliefs I think you have to have in order to do science sensibly that are not scientifically justified. So then what you would end up saying in order to make this hard, soft scientism distinction is that the the most reliable form of knowledge we have is dependent upon the less reliable forms of knowledge that we have. And I'm not sure that that's a coherent position to take. Yeah, I mean that. I, I, I think that's that's moving the argument on an, another step, uh, as it were. I'm just making a sort of epistemological point that it doesn't make sense to me to to ground what you think of as your most reliable form of knowledge in things that you think of as less reliable than that form of knowledge itself. Um, because it was, if it's dependent upon the lesser, how can it rise above its source, uh, as it were? Does that, does that make sense? It's certainly true, you know, historically, and one might argue, you know, philosophically, that it's necessary to have, um, that the, you know, the scientific revolution in the West and so on was, was founded upon certain theological beliefs. Um, that, because it, it's easy to see, you can have, you can have other worldview beliefs that are inimitable in, 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 to doing science inimitable to thinking that we have reliable cognitive contact with the world or um, you know that you're not going to get struck by lightning when you cut up the frog because um, you know the, the goddess of frogs will be angry at you or um, <laughs> you know you think that the world out there is, is real rather than being an illusion because you think everything is one anyway and there really is no distinction between me and you and the frog uh, and so on. Um, you know, there there are actually sort of broader worldview beliefs embedded within the whole scientific project as the West conceives it. So, with the probability question, mm. I wonder how much we we have to be careful in that. And, and I think it's been a point that's been made many a time before. But in that, although the probability may be very low, that whoever was in said universe mm. would always ask the question, why me? You know, the, gam- the gambler situation mm. is like, why did I win the lottery mm. is, is not the question you should be asking, because there's no. always going to be someone who wins it who then asks, right. yeah. why am I the one who won the lottery? Yeah. But this is where the, the, the analogy with the fine-tuning 
with that kind of gambler situation falls down because the point with the fine-tuning thing is, is, is that the majority of situations that could have happened would have been ones in which there, there is no one winning. It's not that there's lots of different situations, any of which someone would win, but that there, there, there's this, this tiny subset of the possible situations in which there's any win, as it were, any, anything complex, even to the level of you know, chemistry or matter, let alone, you know, it's not particularly an anthropological argument uh, so much as a, ooh, look, something interesting happened argument, yeah. Uh, which hand up was first week? Yeah. yeah. I just wanted to offer an analogy that kind of helps. Mm. Like, do you think that, um, like, you know, when you play bingo and you have all those different balls and then you roll them out and only one ball comes out? So imagine that you have, like, 1 times 10 to the 20 balls or something like that, an mm. extraordinary amount. All of them except one are you. So all of them are black except four, which is white. And you roll it, you roll it, and only the white one comes out. It's extraordinary unlikely that the white one. And that's kind of what it's like with the universe. All of the other ones are such that life is impossible because maps can't form or something like that. But the only one that does come out is the one which is specified for life. And then the question is like, well, is this just chance? Or is it reasonable to propose design because it's complex and it's specified? That's the kind of analogy which mm. helps me. So here's going to be our last one and come here because it's just edging past. My yeah. problem about this is why do you say that the best explanation of life is tasty instead of taste? Instead of? Deistic. Oh, deistic, right, yes. Um, well, I did, I did say at the beginning, sort of broadly theistic or deistic, or just, just getting to some kind of supernatural source. Um, and it depends a little bit on how you define theism. And, and indeed, Flew, when he said he believed in God, kind of vacillated on this because of the what he conceived to be the popular misunderstandings of the definitions of theism and, and deism and so on. Um, one way of cashing out the distinction that I think is pretty standard is to say that um, theism is the belief in a supernatural creator who kind of takes an interest and, and acts within the world that he's created, whereas deism is the belief in a creator who is a kind of necessary condition of the world but then um, isn't the explanation for anything particular within the world, isn't interacting with it or doing miracles or, or what have you. Um, and on that, if you take that definition, I think Flew certainly would turn out to be a theist because he appeals to the intelligence of the designer to account for the origin of life. Uh, it's not just the, the, you know, the basic conditions of the universe and the fine-tuning. If that was all the appeal you made, you could say that's compatible with, with, with deism on that definition. But if you're saying... Now, I actually need to account for the activity of intelligence to, say, get life off the ground. Then you're, you're falling into the, the theist category, at least in a, a sort of minimal sense. Certainly, as I, as I said in the talk, you're not getting to a fully orbed religious understanding of, you know, the God of Moses and Abraham, or what have you, or getting as far as, like, you know, Trinitarianism or um, any particular revelation, you know, Islam or Judaism or Christianity or, or none of them. Um, that would be a, a further question again, um, but one that certainly becomes much more interesting if you already have, you know, abandoned a, a physicalism or arrived at some sort of minimal... There's some kind of creator out there, I suppose, 
that creator could reveal himself in a more specific way. So the interesting question now becomes, you know, is, is there any reason anywhere to think that he has done so? Um, you'd be a lot less sceptical of the, you know, the arguments for um, the Quran being a revelation of God, if there are any, or for the New Testament record of Jesus' life being accurate if you already had that kind of worldview in the back of your mind, as opposed to if you didn't, of, of course you would. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think we just give Peter a final round of applause. Thank you very much.